If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me in them to the Gospel of John once again. Um, this is going to be a week where it's going to be good to have your Bible just laying in front of you as we kind of return to some words and phrases. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we do have some Bibles available on the back cart that you can grab and use and take home if you don't own a copy of God's Word. That's our gift to you. You certainly can follow along on the screen behind me. We're studying the Gospel of John, and if you're visiting with us, we're just in week three, so we're not very far, and so therefore you're not behind at all. Today we come to the end of what is known as the prologue of the Gospel of John. These are those introductory remarks that the Apostle makes before he begins to recount the life of Jesus. Some have called this, it's the lobby, it's the foyer, before we get in to the story of Jesus. And this is a foyer that has set up for us in grand fashion what Jesus is going to live out and illustrate. These really big themes that we've already looked at a couple of them in the previous weeks. The first week we focused on the theme, the metaphor of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then last week we focused on the light. The true light has come into the world, and yet the world didn't see it, didn't accept it. Well, now this week we focus on the theme of glory, glory. If creational, foundational, Trinitarian theology wasn't enough as we unpack that in the first verse, in the beginning was the Word. Today we move into a robust Christology, right? The theology of Jesus Christ. And specifically, the doctrine of the Incarnation. Dorothy Sayers, the novelist and poet some of you may have been familiar with in the early 20th century, she wrote this, if we call this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, if we call this dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? This is a doctrine that must thrill us. This passage is a familiar one. We're going to spend most of our time on verse 14, which is really the pinnacle and the foundation of the gospel message. So John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 is where we'll set our hearts this morning. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word If you're able, I invite you to do that. If you're not, you may remain in your seats. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Listen as I read. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. 
He has made him known. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to begin this morning with this simple statement. We are all wired for glory. We all want to be captivated by beauty. We all seek things that take our breath away. And I'm not just speaking of of trips to Mount Rainier or trips to Mount Baker, though those are good trips that take our breath away. You may not consciously think about it, but each morning you wake up in pursuit of that which would fill you, that which would wow you, that which would bring you happiness, that which would bring you wholeness. Paul Tripp, PCA pastor and author in his book entitled Awe, calls it by this synonym. He calls it the pursuit of awe. He writes this, That's why we go to great museums, stadium concerts, expensive restaurants, and playoff games. The little boy dreaming of Air Jordans is just as much an awe seeker as the business magnet. The teenage girl going to prom is just as much on a quest for all as the woman planning the house of her dreams. The athlete who reaches for stardom seeks the same treasure as the man who yearns for the perfect wife and family. Glory. We want to be awed. And so we seek it out in nature. And the world cries, look at Mother Earth, look at what she is. We look to technology to give it to us. And the world says, ah, look what we can do. We strive to build our own reputations and find glory there. And the world says, the power of putting your mind to your dreams. We want to be amazed. We, we want to be amazing. Now, of course, there is nothing wrong with these pursuits. There's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. God created a glorious world. I, I love mountain hikes. He has given humanity the capacity to do glorious things. I love Coldplay concerts. They're amazing. But none of these things are ends in themselves. They are pseudo-glories. They're all designed to point to the true glory. And that, of course, is John's aim in this Gospel. That you, that I, might see Jesus. The Word, the light, the life, the glory the one who is unlike any other and must not be ignored. So today, three truths will guide us through this passage, reminding us of the one to stand in awe of, reminding us to pursue Him and to listen to Him above all others. The first truth is this. 
Jesus is the glory that was shadowed. Jesus is the glory that was shadowed. Of course, most of you know and believe this fact. The Bible, the Word of God, which we just read, while timeless in its truth, it was penned in a particular context to a particular people. And so the Apostle John was a first century Jew, and he was writing to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles, both those steeped in the tradition and story of the Old Testament, as well as those who are in tune with Greek thought and philosophy, breathing the cultural air of their day. And we've already seen some of this. And John's use of the term logos, right? The word. It was a philosophical concept that John tapped into to describe this God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, here in this passage, he perks up the Jewish years. As he brings up realities that would have been well familiar to the people of Israel. Clear echoes of the Old Testament. Verse 14, let me read it again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you hear it? Maybe not. You see, it's in that word, dwelt. A word more literally translated, pitched His tent among us. And if you're a Jew, this brought to mind... The tabernacle. After years of being bound in slavery, Yahweh had rescued His people Israel. And He had met them with His law at the foot of Mount Sinai. He had promised them a land that He was preparing for them. And He had confirmed a covenant with them through their leader, Moses. And then He instructs God's people to make for Him a place for His presence. And of course, God is everywhere. And yet, Yahweh chooses to present Himself in special ways, in particular places. And so he tells Moses in Exodus 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And indeed, they did make Yahweh a sanctuary. Following God's specific instructions, which are chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Exodus, Exodus 25 through chapter 30, an elaborate structure was created, a structure we call the tabernacle. And it had to be movable because God's people were on the move, journeying through the wilderness to the land of promise. And yet, when God's people were stationary, the tabernacle was at the center of their camp at the center of their life together. And this place, this tent of meeting, as it came to be called, it had to reflect heavenly realities, bridging the difference and the distance between Yahweh and His people Israel. And so part of this then was the cleanliness that was demanded, the sacrificial system that was put forth, the offerings that were required. They all found their place here. 
All that to say that when John says that the Word dwelt among us, he is saying something profound. Namely, that Jesus is the glory that was shadowed in the tabernacle. He is the embodiment of God's presence. Verse 18, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Literally, Jesus is the one who is in the bosom of the Father. This is parallel to verse 1 where he says he was with God and was God. Jesus is the presence of God that accompanies us on our journey. Jesus is the presence that is to be the center of our lives. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice that makes the sacrifices obsolete. And the tabernacle and the altar before it and the temple after it, they are all no longer needed because of Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. All of that is packed into that one word. But John goes on. He has dwelt with us and we have seen His glory What kind of glory are we talking about? What is this glory? Well, it's the kind of glory that our hearts long for. It's the kind of glory that we long to stand in awe of. And again, this brings to the Jewish mind the Shekinah glory. That ancient Near East context of the tabernacle, God's glory and God's presence guided the people of Israel with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and it would hover over the tabernacle at the center of camp, a visible display of powerful and beautiful glory. Not only that, but listen to Exodus chapter 33. You can flip there if you want. Exodus chapter 33, the Lord says in verse 12, or Moses says in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and yet you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's the Lord. And then he says, Moses, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your peoples? Is not your going with us so that we, we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And here's the key. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Remember the story? And what did the Lord do? While my glory passes by, skipping down to verse 22, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses can't even look at the glory of the Lord's presence. 
But now, John says, we have seen it. We have seen it. It stood and it ate and it walked and it talked right before us because that presence, that glory is a person. And now as John will go on to recount as he wants to show and lay out in his gospel, we will see the glory of Jesus through his signs, through his person, through his wonders, through his death through his resurrection. Jesus is the true glory. Jesus is the glory that was shadowed. Just as Isaiah promised and prophesied in Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So what? So what does this mean for us? In addition to being thrilling, amazing, a mind-blowing doctrine, I think we need to remember this, that amidst all of our other loves, all of our other cravings, all of our other pursuits, we must know and pursue Jesus above it all. Because there is nothing like Him. There is no one like him. Jesus is the glory that your hearts long for. Jesus is the real thing. And pursuing him puts all other glories in their proper place. From his fullness, verse 16, we have received. There is nothing that he can provide. There is no need that he can fill. There is no want that he cannot satisfy. Jesus is an endless fountain of glory and grace. As the old hymn writer penned, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Jesus is the glory that was shadowed that is now made known. That's the first truth. The second is this. Jesus is the glory that saves. Jesus is the glory that saves. Jesus is not just the presence, the power, and the beauty that has been shadowed, but the one who intentionally came to save. Let's back up to that first phrase before the dwelt among us part. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Now this concept, this was an incredulous one for the Greeks. We already spoke about the Word, this divine reason and logic that the philosophers had expounded upon and how John had tied this to Jesus, this reason, this logic that ties the universe together resounded with the philosophers of the day. But the Logos, the Word becoming flesh? Absolutely not. No. God was distant He was the one that was to be ascended to, not the one who was to to descend to us. Even today, Richard Dawkins, many of you know that name, very outspoken, prominent author and atheist, he has said that this idea of God becoming man, of the Word becoming flesh, here's the quote, doesn't do justice to the grandeur of the universe. 
And to pile on top of that, notice that John doesn't say the Word became a man or that the Word became a body. He could have used the Greek equivalents of those English words, but he says the Word became flesh. The Greek word sarks, and I normally don't say Greek word, but that word even sounds raw, sarks. And while it means the whole person, as those others do, sarks is particularly crude. It almost highlights the frailty and the vulnerability of human existence. The word became sarks, flesh. Isaiah 45, all flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. So John is saying that the Word, the Son of God, Jesus, became enfleshed. But why does he say it this way? And more importantly, why does this have to happen? Let me try to answer those two questions. First of all, why does he say it this way? Why does he use the word flesh? Well, I think to briefly answer it, I think God is saying through Jesus, I see you. I know you. I see you in your weakness. I see you in your frailty. I remember that you are dust. And not just I see you, but you need not be ashamed. I pronounced you good when I made you that way. So you need not be ashamed of your frailty, of your limitations. Again, as the hymn writer says, very poetically, Jesus, he abhors not the virgin's womb. But why did this have to happen? Beyond just the use of flesh, that word, why did this have to happen? Because the Word becoming flesh is necessary to save us. And brothers and sisters, this is just the heart of the Gospel and what we believe. You see, our sin as humanity is against God and God alone. And the seriousness of that, it can't be overstated. Anselm, the 11th century theologian, helps flesh this out by saying that the seriousness of the sin is determined by the person who is sinned against. Not by the person sinning or even the, the, the sin that has been committed, but who is the sin being committed against? So if you get angry at your neighbor for whatever, and the next time you cross paths with him at the mailbox, you decide in your anger just to slap him across the head. Right? That's going to be a thing, right? If you don't start a brawl right there at the mailbox, you're at least going to get the cops called. You're probably going to get a night in jail. You're probably going to get a misdemeanor of some sort. But let's say you're angry with the President of the United States and you make your way to the greeting line of the President of the United States and as he comes along and he's shaking hands, rather than shaking the President's hand, you decide to slap him across the face. That's a whole other thing than your neighbor. 
That's a whole nother consequence that's about to fall on your head. You see, we have a God-sized offense that ultimately only God Himself can deal with. And yet, ultimately, it's our offense. It must be dealt with from our side, from humanity's side. And so the answer to this in the glorious wisdom of God is Jesus, the God-man. The Word becoming flesh to identify with us. The Word dwelling among us, living the holy life that we couldn't. The Word dying to atone for our failures. The Word rising to life for vindication and victory. This is a glory that is unexpected, but it is a glory, a necessary glory in order to save us. As John says in verse 16, this is grace upon grace. Now we all know, I think most of us know the definition of the word grace. Grace means unmerited favor. And so when we hear that word, or that phrase, grace upon grace, we think of of the phrase as like icing on a cake, right? Grace upon grace. But the Greek word here, translated as upon is actually normally translated as in the place of. So in other words, and I think this becomes clear as we look ahead to verse 17, that John is again tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. Moses to Jesus, the law to the gospel. So the law was grace. The law was gracious in that it revealed God's character and His requirements to us for our good and for our protection, but the law couldn't save us. The law could only condemn us. It could only temporarily cover sin, not deal with sin finally and fully. And so Augustine says this, the law threatened but did not bring aid. It commanded but it did not heal. It made manifest but it did not take away our feebleness. And so further grace, greater grace, greater glory was required in the place of a grace that could truly save and a glory that could truly satisfy. And that came in the person of Jesus. That's the grace upon grace. Grace came through Moses, but greater grace came through Jesus. And that tie-in is going to become so important later in John as John alludes again to this comparison. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So brothers and sisters, rejoice in the glory that saves. Be thrilled by the One who has made flesh to save you. It had to be done. And it was done. Jesus is the glory that saves. Well, one final truth this morning. Real briefly, this is the shortest of the three. Jesus is the glory that speaks. So yes, there are three S's. I didn't mean to do that. It just happened. Sometimes it just happens. 
the glory shadowed, the glory that saves, and the glory that speaks. Verse 14, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he makes a point of adding that second phrase. Not just full of grace, but full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now some commentators have tied this phrase to Yahweh's declaration, again, using that kind of same tactic that John does, tying Moses to Jesus and the law to the gospel. Some say that that John is tying this phrase to Yahweh's declaration of himself in, in Exodus 34, where he reveals who he is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, hesed, and faithfulness. There may very well be a tie there that John is wanting to make to that self-revelation of God to Moses in Exodus 34. But I also want us to take note that John will use the term truth a lot in the book of John, 24 times. So truth is going to be a big deal to John. So I don't think we just exclusively think about it in tying it to Yahweh's revelation in Exodus 34. Jesus is the Word. He's the Word of God. He's the final Word. He will declare Himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I think this full of grace and truth is a reminder of who this Jesus came to be. In other words, His reality is reality. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is I'm tired of hearing from the world and even some from the church at times that the Jesus of the Bible wouldn't do this or wouldn't say this or wouldn't be like that. We live in an age, brothers and sisters, you know this, more than ever, truth is attacked, it's misrepresented, it's minimized, it's redefined, it's appropriated. Suddenly we have a thing which isn't a thing, but we call it a thing, my truth. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is the truth. That Jesus is the glory that speaks. He is not dead. He is not silent. He is not different. We need to seek and hear what He says and heed His voice more than ever. Yes, He speaks grace. Grace, but it's not grace that is mush. It's grace that is also truth. And sometimes that truth offends. One of the things that came to mind as I was thinking about this and this final point is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. I don't know how many of you read this book. It's a great book written 50 plus years ago where C.S. Lewis fills this book with letters. Letters from Uncle Screwtape, who is a demon, to his younger protege, Wormwood. 
giving him advice on how to deal with humanity, how to foil humanity, how to drag humanity away from the truth. And he opens up with letter number one. And I just want to read some of it to you because I think it's relevant in this last point. Jesus is the glory that speaks, that speaks truth. He says this, again, this is a demon writing to another demon. My dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trife naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. The enemy, of course, is the Lord. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy, to having a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing together in his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but academic or practical, outworn, contemporary, conventional, or ruthless, I might add in our current context, or my truth. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it's strong or stark or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Lewis was writing in a particular era that I think our era is much different, and yet... There's quite a bit of tie there in regards to the fact that sin is about believing lies and lies, jargon, are rampant. Jesus is the glory that speaks. We must not believe the lie that Jesus is not the glory that we need. He is. We must not believe that the glory of the incarnation is not our salvation. It is. We must not believe that his words and his path aren't the best for us because they are. The glory of Jesus in the flesh, dwelling among us in grace and in truth. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Amazing, incredible declaration from your servant. And we thank you most of all for the reality of the one whom he proclaims, you, Lord Jesus. The one who set aside the glory of heaven and came to earth in glorious humiliation that we might see the Father, that we might be saved, and that we might hear definitively the truth. Lord God, we thank You for these reminders today and we pray, Holy Spirit, 
as you reside in each of us united to Christ, as you reside in this place in your church, we pray that you would guide us and grow us and help us to live in these realities for the glory of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.